If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided let's give them a call. Welcome to the Calling History Podcast. I'm Tony Dean, and today we'll be calling history to speak with Martha Washington. She'll be answering our call on February 19, 1784, at the age of 53 years old. The American Revolution is over. General Washington is home from the war and has made a promise to Martha he is done with public life. Martha has been waiting for eight long years for this moment. Although her stories of supporting the troops on the battlefield show her commitment to General Washington and our country, she is tired of being duty-bound and ready to enjoy her retirement with family, planting, and improving Mount Vernon. But you and I know the truth. George Washington hasn't even become president yet, and her days of service to the nation have just begun. During this brief moment of respite for the Washingtons, she will share her stories of how she supported the troops by showing them that they were more than just a musket and a body, and why, after coming home for only two days during the eight years of the war, she wished George Washington had not come home at all. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow history lovers and horsewomen everywhere, I give you Martha Washington. Hello, is that you, Mrs. Washington? Good day, sir. How are you? Oh, I'm well, ma'am. It is such a pleasure to speak with you. My name is Tony Dean, and I'm talking to you from the future in the 21st century. The device that you're holding in your hand is called a smartphone, and it allows us to speak as if we were just a few feet from one another. And it also allows me to share a recording of our conversation with people around the world. And I was hoping that I could ask you some questions today because you have lived a challenging and interesting life. But before I ask those questions, I understand this is a very strange introduction. Can I answer any questions that you may have first? Oh, my goodness. Well, you have brought up so much in that sentence you just said to me that I have lived a challenging and interesting life, and I do hope that my life is not coming to a close, that you are addressing me from a place that I'm about to see. I'm hoping not. Well, actually, I, because I'm calling you from the future, I actually do know what happens next and how much time you have left. And I will let you know that you still have a long life to live, and George as well, and a lot that you're still going to accomplish. So if you were planning on doing too much resting, I would enjoy whatever you have in front of you right now because there is still <laughs> a lot to do. Oh, I am quite relieved to hear that, though I believe divination is not something I am so comfortable with. The block that you have given me, though, it is an interesting thing that allows us to communicate. I do believe it would have been quite helpful during the war, communicating with my husband while he was in camp, and I was at Mount Vernon. Oh, my gosh. Can you even imagine? Like, you're at home at Mount Vernon, you're wondering if he's okay, and he could. And you're absolutely right. He could just pick up that device, if you had one and he had one, and he could call you, and you could just say, hey, just wanted to wish you a good night, and then he could say you too, and you could ask me if he was safe. Like, you could have done that any day, any time you wanted to. How often would you have used it, would it if have you'd had that? Brought me, it would have brought me much peace of mind. Waiting for letters and communicating by letter very difficult. And there was the threat of interception. So I did not always receive the information that 
he wanted to impart to me. I never thought about that because as you and George were probably trying to, can I call him George or do you prefer Mr. Washington? At this point, I would call him generally Washington if you have not made his acquaintance, sir. Yeah, I think that's probably best. That's why I was asking because I wanted to be respectful. But I hadn't really thought about this because when it came to correspondence between you and General Washington, there were probably times where back and forth you'd just be wanting to check on each other's well-being and the opposing sides of the war would probably be doing everything possible to get those letters in their possession just in case you accidentally said something that they could use. So did a lot of letters get intercepted? There were many that were intercepted and there were many that were written not in code because I truly did not know what he wanted or what he meant to share many times. But one time there was a letter that was intercepted and it was related to my health. I was not doing well. I have a tendency to have bilious fevers and sometimes those can last a good many months. Wow. This one was intercepted. We were in Newburgh at that time. I had received a gift, and this is how we knew it was intercepted. The letter was from the widow of a British paymaster, and she sent me things to help with my recovery under a flag of truce. And there were oranges and other citruses and teas and things that I had not seen in a good many years, and I was quite happy to see them, but the general would not let me accept them because it was not appropriate to accept this gift from the other side. Oh, I was so angry. There is not much that we disagree upon, and there are not many times that we have crosswords, but in this case, I will admit that there were crosswords. Now, I was not at my best. I was not feeling well, so I will attribute it to that. But I think back to that confrontation we had in our bedchamber. It was not pretty. I'm sitting here imagining that I was General Washington and you received anything, whether it was oranges or teas or anything, from the other side. And the first thought that I had is, what if they were trying to poison you through the oranges rather than trying to help you? I mean, they say that there's truce, but in war, not everybody keeps their word in war all the time. Do you think that he was afraid of that or... Did he just think it wasn't appropriate? That is so interesting. I never even thought of that possibility. I suppose I am too trusting, seeing as I'm sitting here speaking on a block to you. And trust, I'm sure I can address this later, but that was something that I needed to have in order to do the things that I have done these past eight years. One thing that I was going to mention about trust, just so that you know on this call, we already know what happens next. The people of the world now, they trust you and they believe in you. And your reputation, it doesn't have a scratch on it in our time. Like, it, it couldn't be better. And what fascinates me about that is because I've never heard an ill word about you from anybody about anything, is that mm. it's, there's still so little that I actually know about you. And I kind of wonder if maybe that is because the shadow of General Washington is so giant. I mean, do you feel that because he's such a giant in your time? And believe me, it gets bigger. But do you feel that? Oh, I most certainly do. When I was traveling north, 
they were greeting me as if I were a very great somebody. And that surprised me because I had never even left Virginia until I went north to Cambridge camp. And that was in the fall, late fall of 75. I had never left. I had been very happy to be at home and raise my children and run our household. There was a lot to be done, and I did not want to go anywhere. Our favorite time is to be at home together in domestic felicity. It well, was very, very difficult to leave. No, we have not. But now we are home, and as my husband says, he has retired from all public employments, and he is home now under our own vine and fig tree. Oh, that has to be wonderful because it has been the last eight, nine years, whatever it's been, how much time has he been at home? How much time have you been together during the war, the time of the war? Well, there are two, two answers to that question. You have asked two different things. And the amount of time that he has been at home has been two days during the war. Two we, days? Two days on his way to Camp at York. Yes. Wow. So those letters during, had to feel like boxes of gold being delivered to you. That had to be the most precious things that you would get. So precious. However, I did spend about half of the war with him. I would travel to him each winter. And I do think, and the many hours spent in a carriage, I spent time ciphering and figuring just how much time I had spent with him. And it worked out that it was about half of the war that we were together, but not at Mount Vernon. Those two days that he had come through Mount Vernon, they were very impactful on my life. And I almost wish that those two days had never happened at Mount Vernon. I suppose they should have happened for the outcome of the war. But if he had not come through our home and seen my only remaining child, Jackie, then possibly I may not have lost him. Jackie, that is. Yeah, you're, you're talking about your, your child, John, who you called Jackie. And so he, yes. explain what you mean. I'm not sure what you mean here. Well, Jackie was married to Nellie, and they had married very young. We did not want them to marry young, but his stubbornness was both a curse and a blessing. And I shall explain that. He was away at school, and the general wanted him to continue his education, but he insisted that he was going to marry Nellie. He was going to leave school and marry. Now, Jackie could do no wrong in my eyes. I will admit to that. That's the responsibility of a mother. He was my pride and joy, but he did cause the general a great amount of angst in relation to education. He had stayed at home with Nellie, and because of his insistence upon marrying when he did, they blessed us with four grandchildren. At this time, they are eight and seven and six and three. When well, I was going to say, all this he, sounds good so far. I'm waiting for the bad side of this. <laughs> well, they lived at Abingdon, not very far away. When the general came, Jackie came, and he brought Nellie and the children, which was wonderful for me. But all the generals were there meeting in the in-process construction mess 
of the new room, and he wanted a part of the action. He had not served in an official role in the Continental Army at all so far. He had been to winter camp with me in Cambridge, but he was not part of the command, part of making this happen. He was home, and he wanted to be with his papa, as he called the general. So he went with them to Yorktown. Nellie begged him not to go. I begged him not to go. Washi was only six months old. Can you imagine leaving four children and a wife to go when you did not have to? But they were only going to Yorktown, not as far as other places. And he went, well, he sent me a letter from Camp at York, and he, now in retrospect, it was like he was saying goodbye to our extended family. He had seen his grandmothers. He had seen uncles and cousins and aunts, and he was relaying their good wishes to me in his letter. But it was a very happy letter. He was very well. But following the victory, he caught camp fever. Now, not everyone died of camp fever, but in, in this case, he did. The general had him removed to my brother's home at Eltham, which was not a terrible distance if you are well, but when you are ill, it is a journey. But it was a safe place for him, a comfortable place for him. And Nellie and I thought we were going down for a victory ball, and instead... We were racing to his bedside, and we got there just before he passed. He passed on November the 5th. So you were there in camp at Yorktown, and you saw him pass? We were at my brother's home in Eltham. Oh, my goodness. So what you're saying is, had George not come back for those two days, that Jackie would have never been able to have the conversation saying, hey, I want to come prove myself as a man, and I want to be part of this. That never would have happened. You understand me correctly, sir. And so did you hold this against General Washington? Never. We cannot control the hand of providence. We can attempt to and think we have control, but truly we do not. And I must believe in the hand of providence because after all that has befallen me in my life, really it is more than most should have to go through. And certainly more than any normal human being could handle. I mean, it just, I can't imagine the pressures of being either you or General Washington. I mean, it's just everything that you took on. It it just seems like General Washington, there is no limit to what he's capable of. He, and I knew this when we first met, well, his reputation had preceded him, but he instills a quiet confidence in people whom he is close with. He exacts a great deal from them and expects that you will be true to your responsibilities and your commitments. And he, as I said, instills a quiet confidence in you that you believe in yourself to accomplish. He does. He also radiates a temper if you do not live up to his expectations. Does General Washington have a temper? He does. 
Jackie was one to pull his temper out of him on a regular basis. I would watch in amusement sometimes at his frustration. Can you give me an example? Well, as the general wanted Jackie to take his education seriously, and I do think that is because the general did not have the opportunity to gain the education that his brothers had, that he had expected he would have. But again, the hand of providence intervened, and his father died when he was just 11. So he was not able to go to London, following his brother's footsteps. Hold on, we're talking about General Washington right now. We are, and that is why he valued education so much, because he did not have this opportunity. I see. I lost you for a second there. I thought you were saying that Jackie's father died. And I'm like, wait a minute. Oh, well, well, no, <laughs> Jackie's did father right. did die. That's Jackie's right. father did die. Yes. Yes. I did have four children with my first husband. That's right. I forgot about that. That's exactly mm-hmm. how George grew up. His father died. Or General Washington grew up. His father died early. Yes. So any, keep going. So the education was really important to him. It was, and Jackie preferred cards and horses and drinking and women. And even before he went off to King's College, he preferred anything other than his books. So hunting was a big favorite of his. So Jackie likes women and hunting and cards and <laughs> just the fast Until life. he met his Nellie. Ah, Nellie Once got him he met Nellie, that was it. They were married very young, 16 and 18. Is that young in your time? Well, my first marriage was at 18, though we did start courting at 16. Oh. I do think 16 is quite young for a bride. What do you think the correct age is? 18 or 20. Okay, that makes sense. In our age, I think the correct age to get married is probably 30. Oh, my goodness. But then you... (laughs) will not have any time to have your children. Well, I know, but the problem is there's a generation that we're going through right now where they don't have a great reputation as being super ambitious. And so I don't think that a lot of people are ready for it until they're 25 or 30 now. Ambitious in what way, sir? I would say in all the ways. In the generation that I grew up in, people would be out of their house and they were young and they'd get their own places and get their own job. And there's a lot of people in our time that will live with their parents until they're 30 or 35 years old. It's just... Oh, I cannot even imagine that. So it's interesting because where they married so young and Nellie is now remarrying to Dr. Stewart, and we're going to be raising the two youngest. So taking in children from another family member is not a strange activity, but to keep your own children in your home, in our case, is not something that we have done. Now, maybe that would be the case should Patsy have lived. My daughter, it is hard to say what the future would have been. How old was Patsy? I'm wringing my hands having this conversation. I'm just thinking back to her and becoming a bit reminiscent. That had to be agonizing when Patsy passed along. How old was she and what did she pass along from? She had, she was 17. And from the time she was 11, she had fits. Are you familiar with fits? They are seizures. 
Yes, I'm and familiar with Fitz. She, we tried everything. We consulted as many doctors as we could find, herbalists, and we asked everyone. People would send us suggestions. We tried tinctures and nervous drops. You can make them from valerian. And there was even one time that we were told to try an iron ring on her finger to help control them. Did it work? Oh, no. No, nothing, nothing worked. The one thing that I do think helped but didn't necessarily control them was keeping her body cool. There was a Dr. Johnson who had recommended that to us, and this was after we had tried the Warm Springs in Virginia, and we received a letter from him when we returned, and it suggested that keeping her body cool and making sure that she ate lightly and some moderate exercise, that that would help control the fits. And it definitely made her more comfortable. But it didn't solve it. It did not solve it. Did you say she took nervous drops? Yes, we tried that. We tried mercury. We tried tea of Peruvian bark, bleeding, purges. The poor girl, in retrospect, the amount that we put her through. Did you say you gave her mercury? Yes. Does mercury have a reputation in your time for helping people? It is thought to be helpful, but not in this case. I know that my husband was treated with it as well. Uh, really? When he had smallpox, yes, he had that at 19 in Barbados, and they treated him there with it. There's mm-hmm. quite a bit of writing in our time about when he had smallpox. and He was with Lawrence at that time, wasn't he? He was. How bad was his case of smallpox? Was it, I mean, was he near death, or what do you know about that? I know that he has struggled greatly with many different illnesses. In fact, when we met, he was just recovering from a stomach malady that had made him quite thin. But the smallpox, well, he is not terribly pockmarked, and he does not like to speak of it too much. And his attentions were on Lawrence, who was there to try to treat his consumption. But he did recover. You just said something that that makes me want to ask a question. When you said that he doesn't talk much about the smallpox, when you and him get together, well, I guess you're out in the field, there'd probably be no way not to talk about it. Or maybe even now, does he talk about his time on the battlefield a lot? Is that a common discussion between you and him? It is not. Now, I will tell you why. He knows that I am a very nervous woman. I do not, it is not my nature to be nervous But after all of the things that I have gone through, I'm most anxious when I feel that my children, my grandchildren, my husband is in danger. To the point where when he sent me his letter, as he was going to Cambridge camp to take command of the Continental Army, he wrote to me and he said that he knew how upset I was going to be at this, as we had expected him to return home following the Continental Congress. And then he wrote other letters to Jackie, to my sister, all trying to have them take action to make sure that I was not overcome with thoughts of worry, 
he's oh. very conscious. He's very conscious of my heart and my mind and making sure that I am not overcome easily. And I do, I can go very deep, very quickly with worry. And sometimes I'm not even able to leave my bed. It's incredible considering everything that he was juggling when he was on the battlefield and all of his responsibilities that he had the time to even consider that. It it just shows that, I was going to ask you about this, it sounds like your relationship was very strong. Well, we are true partners. And there are many things that we do discuss. It is more, when I was in camp with him, do you know every morning we would have, or every morning that we were able to, we would have breakfast alone. And it would be a time of uninterrupted conversation for just us because in headquarters there may be 17, 20 people living there or sleeping there. And at the table, you're always having other generals or guests or local officials, other guests where there cannot be a private conversation. So our breakfast time was truly the only time we could have a conversation. And during that time, he would share with me his worries, his fears, his thoughts on how things were going, but also his concerns for the troops. Some things that a man, and please do not take this as an insult to your kind, but a man does not necessarily think about some of the things that are needed to take care of the troops, such as writing letters home for them, being there by their side as they are recovering or as they're waiting to be treated. There are things besides food, shelter, and clothing, which were lacking in almost all cases. They could tolerate so much more if they remembered that there was attention paid to them as a whole, as opposed to just a body with a musket. I can totally see what you're saying. And it's because if you think about the way that a male brain works, we would be thinking, load, shoot, load, shoot. You know what I mean? That's it. And I guess I never thought about this. With you being at camp and being with him during half of the battle, I mean, did you spend all of your time making sure that the amenities that a woman would provide that a man might not be considerate of, that they were available? What would you do well, to I make did sure the that you could I write could. letters? I would write for them. Now, my hand is not a beautiful one. In fact, I am only used as a last resort to copying letters in camp because my hand is not a pretty one. But for a young boy of 17 who would like his family to know that he's thinking of them or that he is hoping that they will pray for him, I don't think a pretty hand is what's needed. I think as long as it is legible, it is valued. So you, so you did that. You wrote letters for the troops when they couldn't write on their own. For a few here and there. Not as many as you're making it sound, but yes. Okay. So what other things did you do in camp like this to make it more livable? Well, listening to the general was a very important part because if the general was in good spirits, which was usually the case if I was there, then everyone else was happy. <laughs> Correct? <laughs> <laughs> that is important. 
Was he nervous all the time? I mean, he's confiding in you. There's nothing you he can was say. Not, yeah, no, right. he was not nervous at all. He would talk things through from different angles and not strategy, not battle strategy, because I have no value in that. But there are generals who think that they should have more command than they do, and I will not divulge names here, or they should have more action than they do. And there are different sides to discuss. And again, to look at the whole picture, to look at the entire person. And if you know their history and you know where they're coming from, why they're asking for the responsibilities that they may be asking for, sometimes the general needs to be reminded of such. That is what I am good at remembering not people as a large community, but the individual's background. Because I know their wives. I know their home story for those in the command. So what was it like when you were in camp? I mean, here you are, a woman, certainly safe, because they know that you are Mrs. Washington. I'm assuming that you'd never be in any sort of danger. But an average woman in a camp full of men probably wouldn't be that safe. What did the men act like around you? They felt like their mother was visiting them. And they were grateful. They were grateful for the attention and the care. And it brought a bit of home into camp. And a slight bit of levity. Sometimes, and again, it depended upon the weather, depended where we were, what was was happening, and who was in camp, who meaning which wives of the general's wives what we could accomplish. But sometimes there were, well, not a ball, but a dance, special dinners, not for all of the troops. But I find that if the generals are, much as my husband, when they're in good spirits, that then trickles down to the troops and everyone is in better spirits. Yeah, that makes sense. I meant to ask you this right at the beginning, and then I got sidetracked because you're telling me all these wonderful stories. And I guess what I'm wondering is, can you kind of give me a lay of the land right now? So what's the date in your time right now? It is the 19th of February, 1784. 1784, okay. And what is the status of your life right now? The war has ended. Where's General Washington? What What does your situation look like right now? Well, we are back at Mount Vernon, and the general just returned home this past Christmas Eve to stay, to put his attention into Mount Vernon, into the plantings, and all the things that he was attempting to manage by letter with his cousin, Mr. Washington, Lund Washington, that did not, they were not all achieved It's very hard to manage by letter only and not set your sights on the projects that you are discussing. That is why this block here would be so helpful. You're the only person that I have these conversations from time to time, and there's only one person that talks about that block, as you do, and that person (laughs) is Benjamin Franklin. So that's... Oh, Mr. Franklin, I am not surprised. Well, I was going to say, this is a compliment because you're both very curious and interested. Do you know uh, Dr. Franklin well? I, am, I have heard 
many stories of him, and but I am not a close acquaintance, no. Who are you closest with that is in General Washington's world? Like, are you, do you know well of Alexander Hamilton? Of those people that, you know, we would consider great people of your time, who would you say that you're closest to or most interested in? During the war, it was General Green and his wife, Kitty. We are very close with them. The Knoxes, are you familiar with General Knox and his Ab- wife, Lucy? Absolutely. That woman has, oh, she makes me laugh. She is so direct and so sure of herself and then what she wants out of her husband. She is, oh, the directness is funny, funny to watch and to hear. So, it frustrates him, I'm sure. What, what can you tell me about Kitty? I don't know anything about Kitty Green. Kitty is so in love with her husband that she will do anything to be with him. Anything. She will have a baby and leave <laughs> that baby with her family in Rhode Island and come to camp. Oh, my gosh. She is so in love with him, and to be without him is physically painful for her. That now, she cool. has brought the children. She has brought the children, but there, there, was, a, there was one time where she did do that. So that actually happened. You're not just speaking figuratively. That sh- that really happened. It truly happened. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. I can't say that I know a lot about General Green. I know a little bit about General Knox, but I know nothing of Lucy and Kitty. Lucy sounds like an absolute riot to spend time with. And she loves to dance, which is wonderful because the general also loves to dance. And I cannot keep up. I can do a little bit, but they can go all evening. They won't sit down. General Washington is a big dancer? He is. He is the best horseman in Virginia and also the best dancer. Oh, my goodness. Yes. How about you? I understand you enjoy riding horses a little bit. I did. I am not riding as much as I used to. I will ride out for air. I like some exercise. I'll stroll the piazza in the morning, early morning before the sun is too high. And sometimes I will take out the horses. Yes. Are you being humble? But not because... as much as... Well, no. At this point, it is less than I used to. I used to be a great rider. I used to have less fear than I do now. Fear... Oh, that is such an interesting topic. There was a time when I would have fear, but I would do it anyway. I was the oldest of eight. And my next three siblings following me were boys. I had to wait eight years until I had a sister. So there was a lot of rough and tumble activity. And I led them in all sorts of exploits outside. It was a fun time. And I took that with me until I was, oh, probably until... I lost my first child. I probably conducted myself with no fear until then. I certainly wouldn't have married or been able to marry Daniel, my first husband, without having, oh, what is the delicate way to put this? The sense of confidence in myself and strength in character to pursue what I wanted. If I did not have that. My husband, Daniel Park Custis, he was 20 years older than I. 
He had wanted to marry previously, but his father never approved. Colonel Custis was, it's not nice to speak ill of the dead, but he was a crotchety man, very set in his ways, irrational in terms of allowing his children to marry. And when Daniel started courting me when I was 16, and he well, started Let me six, pause for a minute. Before yes? you talk about when Daniel courted you, yes. I don't know if I've ever had a conversation with anybody in your time that says, oh, yeah, you know, we met their parents, and they loved us, and we got married. The story always goes this way. The parents hated them, and they weren't going to get married, and then somehow eventually <laughs> you talk them into it. I mean, does that ever happen? Does anybody ever meet the parents and they're like, oh, yeah, we love Martha. She's fabulous. And then that's it. You get buried. I mean, does that ever happen? Of course it does. Okay. Just, just not maybe... in the case of the Custis family. Okay. <laughs> All right. So what happened? Anyhow, so the courting. So we were quite happy and we wanted to marry. Again, this would have been quite young, but fairly quickly we knew we wanted to marry. But his father would not allow it because he did not feel that I was of the same social class that they were. And he knew my family, meaning Colonel Custis knew my father, and he obviously did not approve of my father. And my parents were wonderful people. My mother is still living. And they had a long and productive marriage. The Custises, that was not, that was an explosive marriage. And not one I should ever like to emulate. Really? I am wondering, if, with hindsight being a beautiful thing, if the reason why Colonel Custis was so against his children marrying was because of the nasty marriage that he had with Daniel's mother. Oh. Daniel's mother was wonderful, not that I knew her, but she, but together... It was like oil and water, and then a flame. <laughs> Not good. <laughs> so it took many months of trying to persuade him to allow us to marry, until one day I did go over there in Williamsburg, and I went to call upon Colonel Custis, and I invited him to stroll in the garden to discuss his garden, which he was extremely proud of. And by the end of the conversation and the stroll, he had granted permission. He was extremely wealthy, Colonel Custis, wasn't he? He was. And the reason why we did not marry was because neither one of us, meaning Daniel or myself, relished him being disinherited. Oh, so that's why you don't tell them, yeah, whatever, we'll do whatever we want, you're not going to tell us what to do, because then you're out of the will. Well, his sister did. She married without permission, and she was removed from the will. That actually happened? I mean, she just, nope, sorry, you don't get anything because you don't listen to us. That is to him. His mother had passed already. Wow. Tell me about his, his wealth, because my understanding is that he had an army of slaves on his property. For Daniel, when his father passed away, which happened the year prior to our marriage, Daniel inherited his father's wealth, his lands, his slaves. And there were 17,000 acres in six different counties. Jeez. Quite a bit to manage. And over 300 enslaved persons. You know, I've got to know what your feelings are on that. How, I mean, I know that your family had slaves, and I know that the Costas has had 300 slaves. How do you feel mm -hmm. about slavery and 
enslaving a human being? Well, I will say that my husband, the general, his thoughts have evolved over time. And I am hearing what he has to say. He's learned quite a bit now that he has traveled as much as he has and been exposed to General Lafayette, to his thoughts, to Mr. Lawrence, his thoughts. Slavery, as the general referred to it, is the only unavoidable subject of regret. That's it what is, it is. And he is formulating thoughts and changing his thoughts. He, does, he has not purchased a slave in a number of years. He does not like to separate families. He, it, it is, much of it is what we were brought up with. I know I'm jumping about a bit here, but to understand how, how I was raised, I learned at my mother's knee. She taught me the reading and the writing and the ciphering and religion, of course, and how to run a household for both the family and for guests, for the social scene. None of what we could do could be accomplished without enslaved labor. There's nothing that we could do. And being brought up with this responsibility to run the household and manage the children and manage all of the guests, Virginia hospitality is legendary, there is, it really is impossible to do all the things that you need to do without the extra hands. And yet, I want to ask you about this, but I hear exactly what you're saying, and yet there are countries all over the world that have events and get-togethers and slavery is illegal. I am sure it is, but it is impossible the way Virginia is set up to do what we do without them. Yeah, interesting. And allow me to continue a bit here because when Daniel died, and he died suddenly over three or four day illness. Daniel, your first husband. My first husband. When he died intestate, which means that he died without a will. Now, I like to think that is because he was so happy in our marriage and he felt like he had a new lease on life. We had only been married seven years. But once his father passed away, there was such a freedom and he felt young and able to begin his life. I do not think that he even thought that dying was a possibility, though that was a part of our everyday world, living in the tidewater. But when he died intestate, that meant that I received the widow's third, and each of our two surviving children, Jackie and Patsy, each received a third. Because of that, when I married General Washington, who was Colonel Washington at the time, when I married him, I had all the slaves that, and my children, they all came to the marriage. But they never became Colonel Washington's property because they were dower slaves, meaning they came, they were inherited by us, and then they would be passed on to my children and then to my children's children. Wow. They could not be sold. They could not be freed. They could not be, because they were property of the estate. 
There, I finally have figured out where I was going with my point. And <laughs> that the they were property of the estate. Oh, my goodness. I get lost in the emotions, and then sometimes the words follow later. The, so as property of the estate, all Colonel Washington, later General Washington, all he could do was manage their accounts and their, the children's property. I see. Okay, so let me see if I've got this right and I'm caught up. So, your first husband passes along unexpectedly after seven years. So what happens now is because he doesn't have a will, is that everything's divided into thirds. So you've got 300 slaves, and you get 100 of them, and Jackie gets 100 of them, and Patsy gets 100 of them. But they're too young to manage a third of 17,000 acres of land, so that is so you're managing that initially, but then when you I, marry General Washington, then he jumps in to help manage the estate so that they can enjoy those benefits as they get older. Yes, and I did not have to marry, but I felt it was important to have a father figure for my children, hopefully mm -hmm. have more children, and I needed someone to manage their inheritances without a selfish interest. Boy, that sounds I like had, a tall order. That sounds like a hard person to find. Well, the colonel was quite tall when I met him, and he still <laughs> he is tall, tall but yes, I had many offers. But because he died in testate, I was able to choose. I had many offers of men who would like to run the accounts, to manage the accounts for my children and help me run White House Plantation. But, well, <laughs> I did feel that they had selfish interests. I did not feel that they would have my children's best interests at heart. And I felt quite capable of doing it on my own. And so I did. Within a week of him passing, I sat down and wrote to the factors in London that they were to deal with me. I had informed them in that letter that he had passed, and they were to deal with me as if they were dealing with him. Oh, this is fantastic. Okay, so now you've just said something. I just realized there's a part of your life that appears that it, was, it probably seemed terrible at the time, but it was so important for this moment because you just took over everything. Not, I read that when you took over these plantations and managing all the property and the slaves and everything, that you were a master at it, that you were great at it. And did you, is that the experience that you had, first of all, before I ask the question? Yes. I yeah. knew what I was doing. As our partnership was a true partnership, as it was in both marriages. And I know that I am very lucky to have two love marriages and two partnerships. That is not the case in many marriages. Well, the reason that I ask how, if you were able to handle that well, because I've read that you handled it famously, is this probably goes back to when you were the oldest of eight. And you're responsible for being that oldest, most responsible child. And then, of course, all the boys are born after you, and then you have to be, as you said, some, I can't remember your exact wording, but like rough and tumble and all like that. Well, apparently, Providence was looking out for you again because there was going to be a time where you were going to have to compete and deal with the men 
at something in a situation where they're not dealing used to dealing with women. And you cannot see, but I have a very large smile on my face at present. <laughs> Tell me why. <laughs> because you are absolutely right. I, being the oldest of eight, it set me up to be the boss. As Bartholomew always has said to me that I am bossy, but we are close now. It is fine. But when he was younger, he did not find it as welcome. But it did set me up for what I needed to do. Yeah, I could see that. Can you imagine if you had been like the, your parents would have had seven, like you were the eighth girl of eight girls. I mean, you would have been treated like a little princess and then all of a sudden all of this would have been dropped on you. You wouldn't have been able to handle it. Well, I suppose I would have accepted the marriage proposals that came my way much more readily. Now, one of them, Mr. Carter was quite in love with me and he professed his love many times and his intention to marry me. But where he had buried two wives already and he had 12 children at home, I did not feel that would be in my best interest or in the interest of my children. Because can you imagine at three and one years old, they would be lost in the shuffle. They would not be, pardon me, they would not not be of any consequence to anyone other than me. And that would not be the best thing for our family. Oh, that is an instant family that, I mean, overnight that you would have, a, you would have more responsibility than anybody could possibly handle. I'm trying to picture, I know at that time when men were trying to court you, along with General Washington, trying to imagine these men coming up to you and saying, oh, my, my intentions are honorable. I just want to marry you because I love you and I want to take care of you. And of course, I want to handle all of your money and all your property for you. I mean, how do you even look at these people and make some determination of whether or not their intentions are honorable? I mean, how do you cross that bridge? Well, you know that these people were not unknown to me. It was not a large community. And I did know their nature. Mr. Carter definitely did not have the best of luck with maintaining his wives. But that was not his fault. And they were honorable men. And my lands and property and monies were all a bonus. But I did know who they were before they knew that I was an eligible woman. I see. So some of those guys were scoundrels, and they're thinking, "Oh my gosh, I need the to go." The ones who were asking, the ones who were asking to manage the monies, not in business, not as a husband. Those I was more skeptical of. Martha Washington was smart. The way she navigated suitors interested in her fortune was masterful. Somehow she was able to pick the most honest, duty-bound man that had ever been born. I suppose people of like character attract one another. In the next episode, you'll hear why she thinks George would not be a good king, why she hates her husband's hounds, and a little bit about the Marquis de Lafayette. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe to our podcast so that you'll never miss the next episode.